Thank you for listening to our Truth in Life podcast. This season, we will survey the Bible's unfolding story of redemption. From Genesis to Revelation, every book points to Christ and edifies His church. For more information on our church, visit ChristTheWord.com. All right. Cool. Well, we are to the book of Habakkuk, or Habakkuk. I've normally said Habakkuk, Habakkuk, but when I was little, we used to say Habakkuk. So I'm in the Habakkuk camp now, though. Um, So real quick, just kind of want to recap again our, the last, really, this is the fifth week. So we've got this week, and then we've got one more week in this module, which has kind of gone by fast. Hopefully you've uh, appreciated learning about the Minor Prophets. I mean, it's just... there's so much in there that's wonderful talking about God and his goodness. Uh, and Habakkuk's no different. But let's just recap again. So Obadiah was the first book we covered, and that was written to whom? The Edomites. The Edomites. Yes, the Edomites. And who were the Edomites? Descendants of, Esau. Descendants of Esau. And what did they do to deserve this punishment? Because this was a, a book of punishment. What did the Edomites do to deserve this wrath of, of God? Yeah, they mocked. They mocked Jerusalem. They, were, they should have been brothers, right? They were both descendants of Abraham. They should have been brothers, but instead of supporting them, they were, they were kicking them when they were down, taking advantage of their, their harm. Yes, uh, then we talked about Jonah. So Jonah was written to which city? Nineveh. Nineveh. And we're familiar probably you know with the story of Jonah and the 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 whale and everything but we saw Nineveh repent right and then we get to Micah and who is Micah written to Israel Israel and Judah both right it was kind of the way I would describe it and Micah was actually the biggest book that we're covering in this module at least it's only seven chapters so it's not a huge book by you know in the grand scheme of the, the word of God but uh, there's lots of themes in there. I would, if I was to boil it down to one sense, I would say uh, Israel and Judah's unfaithfulness and God's mercy. Because that's what you see. You see God's Messiah, you know, God's promising, rest, uh, restoring, this remnant. And then last week we talked about Nahum, which was also a prophecy to what city? Nineveh. Nineveh. Yeah, and was this a... Uh, I guess, like, what was the differentiator between this and Jonah? Jonah was like a warning of judgment with an opportunity for repentance. This was like judgment. Yes. So this, okay, if you couldn't hear, uh, Jonah was a warning of judgment, opportunity to repent. They repented, and then uh, God relented. And then Nahum was this final judgment. Nahum was later, you know, 100, 120 years later. So they repented for a time, God spared them, but then they turned back to their wicked ways and God destroyed them. So now we get to this book of Habakkuk. So as far as the lesson, the layout, same as normal, we're going to talk about the context, the historical context, then we're going to talk about the outline of the book, Christ and his church, and then application, how we can put it into our, our lives today. So as far as the historical setting, so we don't know a ton about the author. We know he's a prophet. So the very first verse says, the burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see. So we know he's a prophet. We also know he is a member of the temple orchestra. So it says, for the choir director on my stringed instruments. So 
this is in chapter three, he writes this psalm, basically the song. It says, for the choir director on my stringed instruments. So by calling him my instruments, it seems that he is a musician as well. Again, we're not told that explicitly, but he writes this song. The whole chapter three is a song, this prayer. It says, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shagayanoth, which Shagayanoth is a Hebrew musical term, which likely means praise with strong emotion and impassioned triumph. And I do, I know we talked a little bit about worship and, and the way we worship at the end of the lesson last week. I want to spend a little bit of time actually unpacking this idea a little more because I think it'll, it'll help us understand Habakkuk and, you know, even a, hopefully the greater context of, of Scripture and just of why we sing. So, you know, this idea of music as being part of worship, it is, it's not a new idea. This is not a modern idea at all. We see all throughout the scriptures, we see music accompanying God's worship. You know, you see the song of Miriam and Moses. Uh, this is, God had created a, you know, a great triumph where they destroyed the Egyptians, for instance, and they respond by writing this, this song that's a song of praise and triumph. In First Chronicles, and this is more uh, getting to, to probably what Habakkuk was involved with. So in First Chronicles, it says, David spoke to the chief of the Levites to appoint their relatives, the singers, with instruments of music, harps, lyres, loud-sounding cymbals, to raise the sound of joy. So the Levites appointed Heman, the son of Joel, and his relatives, Asaph, the son of Berechiah. Also, Asaph played the loud-sounding cymbals. So the Levites... Just for some, you know, kind of background, if you're, fam if you're not familiar with the Levites, the Levites were one of the tribes of Israel who were charged with being those overseeing the worship of God. They were set apart as this, this special tribe dedicated to the worship of God. And it, this goes back, actually, like to the Golden Calf, when there's the Ten Commandments, God is up here, and then when Moses was up on this mountain receiving the Ten Commandments from God, the people uh, went after this idolatrous golden calf. They made a golden calf, started worshiping it, partying, you know, making praise to this golden calf. And then God <laughs> punishes them for doing that. And what happens is Moses is, you know, on one side of the camp and everybody else who's partying is on the other side. And Moses says, who's on the Lord's side? Who's, you know, who's with me? I'm with God. Who's on the Lord's side? And the tribe of Levi went and joined Moses. And then he said, go strike down those who are you know, your, your brothers, you know, the other Israelites who are worshiping this idolatrous calf, they go and the tribe of Levite actually goes and strikes down, I don't remember how many thousands, but a, a good number uh, because of the command of God to do that. But at that, from that time forward, there's been this like idea of the tribe of Levi, actually Moses and Aaron were Levites, this idea of the tribe of Levi being set apart specifically for worshiping God. So they were the ones who were in charge of the temple. They were the ones who were in charge of the tabernacle, maintaining that, all the sacrifices. Actually, when they went into the promised land, Levi, the tribe of Levi, didn't have an inheritance that was an inheritance of land. All the other 11 and a half, it was, you know, all the other tribes basically had their own land that was dedicated to them. The inheritance of the Levites was the sacrifice, was that, you know, the sacrifices that were, Sacrifice all the animals that were sacrificed by the other tribes that belonged to the Levites. That was their inheritance. So the Levites' whole tribe, you know, their whole calling was 
worshiping God. It all revolved around worshiping God. And this, they had this permanent position of this song leaders, this office, where part of the worship of God was this group of people that was set apart for, it, it was their occupation, was writing songs, playing songs, playing music, practicing. You know, we see uh, Asaph, who's at a famous, a lot of our favorite Psalms, Psalm 73, about the nearness of God is my only joy. Like Asaph was a famous psalmist along with David. He was one who was in this group. Uh, but it was his job to have this energetic worship. And how many, how many times in scripture do we see this idea of energetic worship in the Psalms? Praise God, you know, praise God in his sanctuary, praise him with symbols. It's this loud, exuberant thing. So, so something that our church has made a commitment to has been worship that is exuberant. And this is uh, actually, many of us might not know, probably the first four to five years of our church, we had traditional classical arrangements for music. And then about, it probably was about, it was when I, around when I was in eighth grade, I guess, about five years into the church, our leaders made this commitment to transition to have music with guitars and drums. And this wasn't, this wasn't to be like the world. This wasn't because we want to, you know, just be cool or try to create a worship that is like emotional or uses effects and that type of thing to uh, create like an artificial emotional response. So part of it was a part of this decision to do the music that we do is like a, a generational decision. Dr. Forney, who's uh, no longer with us, but Dr. Forney had a great sermon about why we as a church need to have drums in our worship. And coming from Dr. Forney, that was not his preference. You know, he was, he loved classical music. You know, that was his preference. But he, it was just such, such a great, a great example of him saying, like, he realized, like, okay, this is, even though it's not my preference, like, in order to attract people in future generations who are younger, like, we need to have this type of worship. But also, probably even more than that, like, we wanted to foster a worship where the, the shouting, where the loud sounding symbols, where this energy is, you know, is welcome. This shagayanoth, this strong emotion and, pass, and impassioned triumph. Um, so, you know, that, that's the type of worship that we want to have at Christ the Word. But this is also something for us, like, this is the way that God intended for us to worship. We see that going all the way back to this, this passage in Habakkuk and even earlier. So, I know this is kind of a lot of, a lot of thoughts about worship here, uh, but hopefully it's helpful in understanding not just our church's worship, but also this tradition that Habakkuk would have been part of as, this, as a member of the temple orchestra and really kind of understand what it would have been like to, to be in the Hebrews. So here is a map as far as historical area. Again, if you'll remember the two kingdoms, the northern tribe, which was Israel, the southern kingdom, which was Judah. And this was after, the, after Solomon's son Rehoboam, the kingdom split. And then Judah was where Jerusalem was. I have a question mark here over the star because we are not told specifically that Habakkuk was from Jerusalem, but I think a lot of people understand that, okay, if he was part of this temple choir, if he had relationships with the the orchestra master that he probably would have been in Jerusalem or around Jerusalem. So 
uh, where, again, it's, it's, that's likely. As far as when Habakkuk is, is prophesying, we are not told specifically, but we have, a, an, I guess, based on context of what he's saying, we can kind of piece it together a little bit. So a few things. It's clear that he is pr prophesying before the Babylonian exile. If, if we look at the kingdom, the, ti the timeline, this is the kingdom of uh, Israel. So kingdom divided, that was the event I mentioned where the north split off from the south. 722 is when the northern kingdom was attacked and fell. So what nation besieged the northern kingdom? Assyria. Assyria. And the capital of that is Nineveh. Nineveh. Yeah, so that's what we've been talking about with Nineveh. You know, that's, that's the first exile. And then uh, 140 years later, whatever it was, the, uh, the, nor the southern kingdom, Judah, was attacked by Babylon. And as far as Habakkuk, we, a lot of people will call him one of like the 11th hour prophets because the prophecies that he was writing were right before, very imminently before Judah fell. So it seems, based on what he's saying, that the worship... So Josiah was a king right here. Josiah was a very good king. He instituted worship. He went back to the law of God. He destroyed a lot of the idols. He was very committed to restoring biblical, true worship. But then that didn't last, right? The kings that came after him were wicked. So we, most people understand that, okay, probably the reforms that Josiah had implemented were no longer in effect, but it was before the fall of Judah. Uh, so that, that's why we, we understand that it was, this was around when most people think that Habakkuk was prophesying. So, as far as the outline of the book, Habakkuk is interesting because it is a conversation. It's a conversation, a lot of times in scripture we see conversations between men and God. We see that, you know, I think Job is a great example where he, God, you know, why have you done this? And God is coming in and responding. It's not the only time. There are lots of times when men of faith are, are questioning God or calling out to him, okay, why have you done this? So really the, the book, it's three chapters. The way we can kind of break it apart is uh, his first conversation with God, his second conversation with God, and then this psalm of worship that I had mentioned earlier, this last, last chapter is just a psalm of worship. So, the first conversation with God. Let's see what, what Habakkuk's complaint is. So really this is, the conversations are simple conversations. It'll be like Habakkuk's complaint and then God's response, and then Habakkuk's complaint and then, and then God's response. So, does somebody want to read nice and loud? This is from Habakkuk 1, Habakkuk's complaint. Thanks, Mike. How long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? I cry out to you violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. Thank you. So, what if someone wants to kind of summarize this, what is Habakkuk's complaint? What is he frustrated with at this point? God's slowness to deal with sin. God's slowness to deal with sin. Great. Yeah, so he, Habakkuk, is living, he's in, in Judah. 
all around him, he sees corruption. He sees, you know, violence. Oh Lord, how long, this reminds me of Psalm 13. How long, oh Lord, will, you know, will I be calling out forever? How long, oh Lord, will you not hear? So he's looking around and saying, there's iniquity all around me. There's violence, there's injustice. We can probably relate to this, right? We look around us and we see, we see violence all around. We see children being slaughtered before they ever even enter the world. We see, you know, all around us, the wickedness is going on. God is being hated. The law is ignored. So he's basically saying, you know, God, why are you allowing this? Why are you allowing this to continue uh, the sin of, that's happening in your people's lives? So let's see what God says. All right. Can I get another volunteer to read God's response here? Thanks. Look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder, because I am going to do something in your days you would not believe if you were told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They are dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate with themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and keener than wolves in the all right. So, does anybody know who the Chaldeans are? Babylonians. Babylonians, yes. So, as far as why the Chaldeans and Babylonians were used interchangeably, I think um, the Babylonians were, or the, the people of Chaldea lived in the region of Babylon. So that's why sometimes you'll see in scripture Babylonians and Chaldeans used interchangeably because one of them is, is referring more to the geographical region, the other is referring more to like the ethnic descent. But yeah, so he's saying, okay, wait a second, I'm doing something and uh, you're not gonna believe what it is. He says, I'm doing something in your days, you would not believe what, if you were told because I'm raising up the Chaldeans and he, this is only an excerpt of that. It goes on for a bit longer. But basically he is saying, I'm gonna have these Chaldeans come in and punish Judah. They're gonna bring punishment. So all this iniquity that you see, all the injustice, all the you know, worshiping at idols, it's not that I've been slow, it's not that I've you know, not cared about those things, I have, and I'm about to act to punish that. So, um, as far as the, just the, the dread and the fear and the horses swifter than leopards and the keener than wolves, I mean, he's basically saying this is a scary army. And it was. The, ba you know, the Babylonians ended up ruling over the entire region. Uh, if you remember the prophecy of Daniel, uh, where there's this, there's this man and he has a golden head and silver shoulders and bronze stomach and then iron and clay on his feet. That's representing these kingdoms of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, uh, Rome, and then the, kind of the split Roman Empire. And Babylon is the head of gold on that. It is like the preeminent you know, it is a mighty kingdom. So God is saying, I am raising up this mighty kingdom to come and punish. 
So it's interesting though, and the verse I'm about to read is not shown on the slide. It's at the end of the chapter. God includes this. He says, but they will be held guilty, the Chaldeans, but they will be held guilty. They whose strength is their God. So this is important. The idea that Babylon is going to be punished by God and held guilty because it teaches us about God's sovereignty. When I say God's sovereignty, I mean his, uh, his ability to control, the fact that he's controlling all things, that he is guiding, you know, guiding the hearts of the kings, he's reigning over everything, that he can use and direct a, a nation to come and punish Israel. But is Babylon doing that because they want to obey God and punish Israel? Is that their motive? Is because, okay, they want to honor God by implementing justice. Yeah. No. They love violence. They're proud. As, you know, it says their strength is their God. There's a very similar verse, actually, in Isaiah. Isaiah 10 talks about this, but with the Assyrians. He said, he, they say, uh, with the nation of Assyria, the ones that uh, punished Israel, he says, I use them as their tool. You know, they are executing my will, yet their heart does not intend to do my will. They are doing it. They're still held guilty, even though they're accomplishing God's plan. They're still held guilty because they're doing it out of pride. They are doing it, um, you know, out of these sinful motives. But what that teaches us is God can take humans' sinful motives and direct them to accomplish his will. All right, let's keep rolling. So, his first response is, okay, I'm raising up these people to... <laughs> to punish Judah. So let's see what Habakkuk thinks next. Does anybody want to read? AJ, go ahead. This you, is Lord, from chapter two, by the way. Have appointed them to judge, and you, O Rock, have established them to correct. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? All right. So I feel like this is a pretty good, pretty good uh, complaint by Habakkuk, right? Like the first reply that God had kind of solved the one difficulty of how long, you know, why aren't you listening? God says, okay, no, I, I see the injustice. I'm going to deal with it. But then the question is, well, how can God use an evil nation to destroy a people that's less wicked than itself? It's kind of like the, the why, why do the wicked prosper question, right? You see, actually, Asaph in Psalm 73, that talks about you know, this idea of the, why do the wicked prosper? But why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? Than they? This last verse right here. So why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? When, so he, when he's referring to the wicked, who is he talking about? Babylon. Babylon. And then he says, though more righteous than they, who's he talking about? Judah. Yes. Even though Judah is wicked and has left God, Habakkuk is still recognizing that, okay, they're, they're still more righteous than Babylon. So God is using, you know, he's punishing Judah's wickedness with an even more wicked nation, which does that seem fair to our, you know, our human, my, you know, our human mind? No, it doesn't seem fair. Like I, this makes sense to us, right? Habakkuk's complaint here is a very relatable, very understandable thing where, where we would say like, okay, 
that, yeah, that doesn't seem like justice. So he asks this question and then he goes on to, it says, and this is, I don't have this on the text, but this is just kind of like a little excerpt at the beginning of God's response. He says, he asks this question and he says, I'm going to go wait on the wall to see what God replies. So he basically, you know, goes and waits probably on the city wall, you know, like up, up, you know, on the edge, he's wait, waiting to hear what God replies. And then he says, uh, I, I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart and I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am approved or not approved, reproved. So it's a humble reply. He's, he's acknowledging it like God is probably going to reprove me and chastise me for this question. Uh, but he's going to go and listen to see what God, you know, he understands that his questioning God, he's questioning the almighty and he's understanding that, okay, my, my perspective on this might be wrong. God, I'm going to hear what you say and what, you know, I'm going to listen. If you approve me, I'm going to listen. So very humble, you know, when we think of like what makes questioning God or, you know, raising his complaint, okay, like he's doing it in faith. He's doing it, you know, in faith that God is sovereign, that God's a good God and that he's understanding that he's probably wrong, you know, compared to when we see people question God who just hate God and don't, aren't actually interested in, you know, seeing what God says. It's a very different thing. He's, he wants to see what God replies and he's being humble about it. So he has this, hum, you know, kind of saying, I'm going to listen to you, see what you say. And then here's what God says. So there are, I've kind of broken it into four parts. God's response has a lot of different sections in it. So we'll read uh, the, four, the four different chunks. So the first thing he says is, and I'm just going to read the, the verse here. Again, this is in chapter two. The vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come. It will not delay. So God is saying, first, you need to be patient and wait for my timing. So this, this idea of the vision, that means like, the prophecy, the fulfillment of what's going to happen. God is saying, there's this vision and it's going to happen. And, you know, just this idea of it hastening toward the goal and will not fail. There's this idea that, you know, Habakkuk sees things and he wants it to happen right now. And God is saying, this is going to happen in my time. I'm going to deal with it. It's going to, it will certainly come. It will not delay. I'm going to deal with it. But this is in my, in my timing. So that's the first part of what God responds. The second part is then he kind of talks about this difference between the righteous life and the wicked life. As for the proud one, you know, that's the Chaldeans, right? They're, they're proud. They say, my strength is my, uh, my salvation. As for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by faith. So the wicked they have no peace. Their soul is not right within them. I think we've all seen this, right? Those, the wicked around us in our own lives, when we're wicked, when we are acting wickedly, we have no peace. Our soul is not right within them, but the righteous will live by his faith. So it's kind of putting this contrast. It's almost like there's, God is acknowledging like, yes, there's this wicked country that is prospering right now, but don't, just look and assume that just because they're prospering, that they're like these joyful, happy people. 
their soul's not right within them. You look at them and ostensibly, yeah, the wicked prosper. You see the people who hate God, you know, we see this in our own life. The, the, the people who hate God are the ones who are rising to the top, who are being blessed with all this money. But don't think that that, that means that they are happy, that that means that they feel fulfilled. No, if they don't love God, their soul is not right within them. But we have life. When we have faith, we have this, you know, this faith that gives us joy. And even if we're not prospering by the ways that we want to be prospering, if we have faith in Christ, we are the ones who are living. All right. And then God is saying that they are going to be punished. Indeed, you, this is talking Babylon, indeed, you, Babylon, will become a plunder for them. Because you have looted many nations, and all the remainders of the peoples will loot you because of human bloodshed and violence done to the land, to all the towns and its inhabitants. So again, God is not ignorant. God is not, you know, when he sees the Babylonians prospering, uh, when Habakkuk sees the, the Babylonians prospering and this thing, oh, you know, like, why is this happening? Why is God allowing it to happen? God knows it's happening, and their punishment is coming. And finally, God is going to establish this new world order, this new, uh, <laughs> this new era where his people are reigning. It says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters co cover the sea. So at some point, this wickedness is going to be destroyed, and everywhere there's going to be a knowledge of God. And that day is coming, and he's saying, wait, wait for it. So, you know, the, God's moral character is such that wicked, wickedness cannot go unpunished. Right now we see wickedness go unpunished. But we need to think, we need to realign our thinking. God's, in Isaiah 55, it says, my ways are not your ways, and my thoughts are not your thoughts. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my thoughts above your earth. Do you know how high the heavens are above the earth? mind-blowingly, like not even in the same plane. So high, you know, we can't, our human minds can't even comprehend like the closest galaxy, I think, Andromeda Galaxy is like 200 light years away. Like, that's so far away. And you know, how much higher than that? That's the closest galaxy out of trillions and trillions of galaxies that we've discovered. Like, that's how much greater God's thoughts are than ours. So God is saying, okay, you're, our human understandings, we see this happening and this happening. We see wickedness prospering. We see ourselves not prospering. We're like, why is this happening? But God, and what God is telling Habakkuk is, see, th see things through my lens. Wait on my timing. They're going to be punished. Wait on my timing. Let God deal with the wickedness. The righteous, our job is simply to live in faith. Let God deal with the wicked. So, then we get to this, this psalm of worship. I, I love this. Uh, again, this is the part that is according to the Shagayanoth, this song of triumph. A few, there's a few sections in here, and, and I'll read this. This is the beginning of it. This is chapter 3. Keep in mind, remember we talked about this idea of the warrior king? Jesus is the warrior king. See, see the... If you can recognize that theme here. His radiance is like the sunlight. He is rays flashing from his hand, and there is the hiding of his power. Before him goes pestilence, and plague comes after him. 
He stood and surveyed the earth. He looked and startled the nations. Yes, the perpetual mountains were shattered. The ancient hills collapsed. His ways are everlasting. So this declaration that we see that we've seen before, God coming in, destroying the mountains, the earth flattening before him, triumphant, fearful. This is the God that we have and that is going to come and you know, execute justice. And then this passage, this is from right at the end of, of chapter three. This, this is my favorite part of the book. This is probably the most famous uh, passage in Habakkuk. And again, just, just listen to this. Though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olives should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls. So that's pretty bleak. No, no fruit on the vine, no cattle in the stalls, the olives, the crops are failing. This is bleak. Nothing's going the way we want it to go. Even though there's all that, yet I will exult. I will rejoice. I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength and he has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on my high places. Understanding that God has a plan and God will work through all these human difficulties and make us victorious is reason to rejoice. You know, right now it says, he has made my feet like hind's feet, like a deer, you know, prancing through, like joyfully skipping around. Even though everything might seem bad, because we know how God works, we can rejoice in him. Because we know that we have a God who is going to come and make all things right. We have a God who is going to come and <laughs> destroy the enemies and establish his people. Because of that, we can rejoice even when things look like this. Amen. Because of the goodness of God. All right. So, you know, each, each week we've been looking at where we see Christ in the Old Testament and where we see the church. And I think sometimes people can actually make, um, you know, they can err and try to make the Old Testament just into an allegory of Christ. I think it can be dangerous because at points if someone does that, they can miss, uh, they can undercut all the lessons that God are teaching. But the reality is, Christ is all over the, the Old Testament. So, you know, where do we see Jesus in, in this, in this prophecy that we've looked at? So we don't see, unlike, you know, Micah, where it's like, oh, here's a direct Messianic prophecy. This is where the Messiah is going to come. We don't see that a specific Messianic prophecy about Christ. But we see that warrior king. Again, you know, just like we, we read that, that first paragraph in Psalm, this mountain's quaking, the downpour of water's sweeping by. You know, it's, it's this idea that we have a great warrior king. Who is the warrior king? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Yeah, we, we talked through some verses last week where we saw Jesus as a warrior king. I mean, it's in Revelation. He's coming in with a sword coming out of his mouth, like triumphant king of kings and lord of lords, it says on him. 
but then all of, you know, Psalm 2, he's being established as ruling the nations with a rod of iron. Just over and over, there's all these prophecies about Jesus, you know, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies, you know, a footstool under your throne. Like, Jesus is this triumphant warrior king. And again, this idea of destroying our enemies. So this idea of a warrior king is kind of twofold, the way I see it. Jesus coming in to triumph and lay the earth low, two things are accomplished. First, the enemies are destroyed. That's clear. You know, that's exactly what he's talking about is going to happen to Babylon. But in the same action, God's people are established. So I think it's, it can offend our our modern sensibilities again. This idea of uh, enemies being destroyed. I think a lot of Christians are really universalists at heart where they think, oh, everybody can come to know God. Uh, everybody, every religion is just, you know, climbing the same mountain to get to know God and be in heaven, but they're just climbing from different sides of the mountain. No, that's not what the Bible says. Like the Bible says, we follow Christ and Christ comes and he destroys all other religions, all other false gods, anyone outside of, you know, his people. And then, that's unpleasant, right? <laughs> but not if you're his people, because if you're part of God's people, through that, you are being established. It doesn't mean that God is evil or bad, you know, the fact that he's destroying his enemies. It means that he's righteous. We need to understand that Sin is so rampant. Sin has, that is in all of us, has made us worthy of the wrath of God. So the fact that he chose, the fact that he is destroying people for their sin doesn't make him bad. It makes him just and righteous. The fact that he is then saving some people and creating, you know, a people that's holy after his own name, like, that is the fact that he's loving and merciful. You went forth for the salvation of your people and for the salvation of your anointed. That's in the verse that I just read, or that in the chapter we had just read. God's going forward in this wrath and with this destruction, it says, is for the salvation of his people. We see this whole story. You know, this is what, what I want us to see in the Old Testament. Like we see this story of God establishing his people. That's what we've been talking about every single week. It's the theme of God's people are sinful, but he loves them and he establishes them through his work. And that's us. We are God's people if we have faith in Christ. If we believe in Christ. There's many who believe in his name. He gave them the right to become children of God. It's from John 1. So we can be part of this salvation. So finally, you know, how does this affect <laughs> everything? So first, that, you know, that verse, the righteous shall live by faith. You might know that from other places in Scripture. It talks about in the Romans and Galatians, actually, this idea of the righteous, Romans 1. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the Greek, for in the righteousness of God, 
or for the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous shall live by faith. And in Galatians, now no man is justified by the law, or that no man is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. So there's kind of this duality to this phrase, the righteous live by faith. You know, on the one hand, it's saying like, if you look at a person's, a righteous person's life, faith is what characterizes their life. They're living by faith. That's, you know, they're not living by sight, they're living by faith. But also it's clear that the reason we have life is through faith. I think there's, um, you know, this idea that Christianity is about trying to get right with God. Christianity is not about trying to get right with God. It's about trusting that God has made it right. It's about having faith in God. And that's what gives us this life. I think part of having faith, AJ? I was also thinking when, you were, when I read that and you saying this now, it, you can see in scripture where faith literally does save people. Like yeah. people believe on a promise, a warning of God, and then they act on it, which would be faith. Yeah. And then that literally saves them. Like, for example, if Lot had not acted when God said, leave. Yeah. You know, Lot believes God and he acts and he goes. If he would have been there, you know, a few hours later, he'd be gone. So the righteous literally do. Yes. See. Yeah. There's... Sometimes we're tempted to see not practically it works out. It literally is practical. Like by us believing that Christ died for our sins and then acting as if that's true, obeying God, serving Christ in the day of judgment will be, it's going to save us. Great point. Yeah. So we see. Like I think what AJ was mentioning, you just see all these examples of, in Scripture of people's literal lives actually being saved by faith, and that—that's like us. The last day of judgment. I mean, which right. Is the ultimate thing, but like this life, you see, really yeah. happens. Yeah. You know, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's a great point, and and part of it is waiting on God's timing. Like part of our living by faith is being content to wait on God's timing and understanding that, okay, like things might not look great right now, but I'm just going to have faith and let God be God and let, whether it's dealing with somebody wicked or just in general, we have wants and desires, like waiting on God's timing and being content to not try to take things into our own hands with that. And then there's this idea of crying out to God. I mean, I think that's Habakkuk's whole these conversations, these complaints, they're crying out to God, how long, O Lord? Like, what, what are you doing? God, what's your, what's your plan? Why, and why is this happening? When we pray, and we should be praying, we can bring our, our fears, we can bring our complaints to God. He hears. You know what? We don't come to Him, we shouldn't come to Him in a, in a way that's just angry at Him or hateful toward God, but we certainly, and there have certainly been times in my life where I've prayed to God like, what, like, what, why are you doing this? You know, I, I don't, it doesn't make sense to me. Why are you doing this? Please deliver it. And we can bring our request to God. We can be honest with God as we pray to him. As long as we are having that humility, like Habakkuk did, to say, okay, I'm going to sit back and see what God answers, honestly, you know, and see what his reproof is for me. And then finally, trusting in God's goodness in the difficult times. At all times, but in the difficult times. On the times when there is no crops and there is no olives. And, you know, this could be 
there's so many things this could be for us, right? This could be the challenges at work, the challenges in our family, seeing our children not following the Lord, seeing, you know, other loved ones not following the Lord, physical pain, or disease. I mean, there are just so many things where we can look at our life and, and say, this is bleak. You know, this is hard. And it's not that it's not hard. Like the fact that there's no cattle and no fruit and no crops, like that is hard. So this doesn't minimize the fact that there are hard things and that we're going through hard things. But what it does, what Habakkuk understands is that even though this is hard, even though life is hard right now, I can rejoice in God because God is so good that I can have confidence that he will bless me and he will establish his people and he will triumph. And understanding that that God, his way of thinking, his plan is just so high above what he sees that even when everything he sees is bad, we can understand that God is a good God and we can rejoice and have joy in any circumstance because we serve a God who, who loves us and who's made all things right. All right. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to Truth and Life. If you enjoyed the series, please subscribe. And remember, from Genesis to Revelation, every book is truth to live by.